This is Truth and Focus, your radio program for worldview talk and issues that matter, with Josh Cumston and Gordon Teeson, broadcasting from the studio at Nebraska Christian Schools. Welcome to Truth and Focus. I'm your host, Gordon Teeson. On today's program, we'll be listening to David Wheaton. He has a nationally syndicated radio talk show called The Christian Worldview. In addition to that, he's a former professional tennis player, ranked in the top 12 in the world at one time and played at Wimbledon. David was at Nebraska Christian. Let's go to that message right now. Okay, well, it's good to be back together this morning. We are going to do part three today of the Overcomer's Road. Yesterday, we talked about mission to get you to motivate you to be an overcomer. Part two yesterday was to give you a scouting report and what you're going to face in high school, college, and beyond to get you prepared. And today, in this first session, we are third session overall, we're going to talk about a game plan. Now, and then the next session, we're going to do the post-game debrief Q&A, at which point we'll give you some books, we'll sign them and personalize them for you. Um, so that'll be good too. So let's start out today. Let me tell you a story about a particular match I played at Wimbledon. Back when I was in my early 20s, I was in the quarterfinals of Wimbledon. And I was playing against Andre Agassi. He was one of the best players in the world at the time. He actually hadn't been known for being much of a grass court player. Because Wimbledon is played on grass. Really, it's like a, like a putting green in a golf course. He actually won Wimbledon the year after I played him. But up until I played him, he wasn't known as a grass court player because he hadn't done very well at Wimbledon. So I was playing him in the quarterfinals that year. So we had both advanced pretty far into the tournament. And as opposed to Agassi not being so much of a grass court specialist, I was. This really suited my game well. I was a serve and run to the net and an aggressive player. That suited grass court tennis. And so I'm playing Agassi in the quarters, and I'm thinking that this is probably a pretty good matchup for me because this is probably my best surface and maybe his worst surface. And so before the match, we're in the locker room, or as they call it over there, the the gentleman's dressing room. And we're in the gentleman's dressing room, and we're getting ready. And in tennis, interestingly enough, you don't have different locker rooms. Like if you go play basketball here, you're, you're in one locker room and your opponent's in the other. In tennis, you all have one locker room. So I'm in there with my brother who was coaching me at the time. And across the locker room there, Agassi is with his coaches and brother and friends of his getting ready for his match. And so you could kind of cut the tension in the room with a knife. You know, going for a big match, center court Wimbledon, international television, July 4th of all dates too, Independence Day back in America. And so my brother sits down with me before the match in the locker room. He pulls out this little postcard. And on the postcard was the game plan for that day. Now you might think at the the highest levels of the game of tennis, the quarterfinals of Wimbledon against Andre Agassi, that there would have been some complicated game plan that only someone who's a professional tennis player would have been able to understand it. Like, you know, the like the New England Patriots, you know, playbook for Tom Brady, something X's and O's you can't even imagine. But the reality was, what was on that postcard that day were just the fundamentals of the game of tennis. Things like, you know, when you get nervous in this match, make sure you stay aggressive. Or on your serve, make sure you toss the ball to the right spot on your serve. Or go for big shots on big points. I mean, these are things that I was told when I was nine years old you know, to play in tennis. Like the first thing is like, you know, it's like dribble the basketball. I mean, this is so basic and so fundamental. What was my brother doing? Well, what my brother knew is going onto that court and under extreme pressure of competition, he knew that 
if I didn't focus on and I wasn't able to execute just the basic fundamentals of the game, that I wouldn't be able to win the match. I mean, all the supplemental things like the really complicated parts of the game, the really detailed strategies, those are fine. But if you can't do the basic fundamentals, you're not going to be able to be successful. So I won the court that day against Agassi, and I won the first set and was leading in the second set. And he, he took an injury timeout, and I thought, well, you know, I'm beating him pretty badly. I thought maybe it's because he just wants to retire from the match and he feels like he's getting embarrassed or something like that. But he came back from the injury timeout and started just to play incredibly well. All of a sudden, he could just run like the wind, and he was just hitting the ball by me all the time. And he won the next two sets and went into the fourth set. He was beating me two sets to one in a three-out-of-five-set match. He almost beat me, and I was almost packing my bags to head home to Minnesota, but somehow came back, won the fourth set, and won the fifth set against Agassiz. And the lesson I learned from that match is, throughout the whole match, whether I was winning or losing, I did focus on the fundamentals. I did the things that my brother told me on the, the postcard, those basic things like staying aggressive when I got nervous, moving my feet when I got nervous, tossing the ball to the right spot on my serve, hitting big shots and big points, going for it. And those things taught me a big lesson about if you can't execute the fundamentals in the moment of pressure, you're in trouble. And this issue of the fundamentals, being able to execute the fundamentals, is something that one of the greatest basketball coaches of all time, I've heard, used to emphasize as well. Coach John Wooden coached, I think, the most NCAA titles at UCLA back like in the maybe the 60s and 70s it was. He had an incredible career that has never been matched And at the beginning of the season, he would take his players and literally say, this is a basketball. Then we work on dribbling. This is how to tie your shoes. These are free throws. Now, this is how you do a bounce pass. He'd focus so much on the fundamentals because he wanted to have those so down so when his players got into the heat of competition, they could execute those things and then go on to bigger and better things. So that's what we're going to talk about today, focusing on the, the fundamentals. And there are three fundamentals of your faith, and I call it your game plan. It's about raising not your academic GPA, your grade point average, but about raising your spiritual GPA. And these are three relationships that we all have in life. How well you interact with God. How well you interact with your peers. And number three, how well you interact with your authorities. GPA, your spiritual GPA. So let's deal with that first one, interaction with God. If I asked you a question, how does a relationship grow? Well, the answer to that question is when you spend time with someone, a relationship deepens. When you communicate with someone, a relationship deepens. So those are really the two fundamentals of having a good relationship with someone. So if that's how a relationship goes, and if I asked you a second question, what's the most important relationship for a Christian? You would say, well, our relationship with God or our walk with Christ. The follow-up question would then be, well, how many of us here today, if that's our most important relationship, and to build a relationship, if it takes time and communication, how many of us spend, let's say, at least five minutes interacting personally with God on a daily basis? And usually when I ask that question, it's a surprisingly few number of people in a room of Christian students that will say, yeah, I interact with God every day for at least five minutes or more where I have a personal time with Him, growing and deepening my relationship with Him. But the vast majority don't. And there's reasons why we don't prioritize this daily time with God. It's because the three Ds, we get distracted, we don't have enough discipline, and it's difficult. 
it's distracted in that. We all have busy lives. I know you, you all are going from the time you get up to the time you go to bed at night. There are other things that are more just temporarily exciting and gratifying than sitting down and quieting down and getting off the phone and the internet and actually spending some quiet, meaningful time with the Lord. It also takes discipline. It takes discipline to take a break from your daily busy schedule to read the Bible, to, to maybe hear it preached, to, to memorize something, to pray. And it's difficult because the Bible exposes things about us that sometimes we don't want to hear. It's sometimes difficult to understand. It tells us to deny ourselves and to follow Him. So whether we're distracted, whether we're not disciplined enough, whether it's the difficulty of it, these are some of the reasons why we don't prioritize this most important relationship, this most important fundamental of the faith in interacting with God every day. The question is, how do we interact with God every day? I think there are three ways we can answer that question. The number one is, is prayer. You know, God speaks to us through his word. That's the primary way God speaks to us. He doesn't speak to us typically through visions and dreams and hearing audible voices. At least I've never heard one. But he does, has put together a book that he speaks to us and has made his mind and his will very clear to us in his word. So he speaks to us through his word and we speak back to him through prayer. We talk to God and he communicates to us through his word. And there's the prayer aspect of it. And the third aspect that we often don't understand is we understand the prayer and reading the word, but we don't understand that God also speaks to us through other people. When we hear the word of God preached, that also is a way that God speaks to us through the anointing of someone who actually brings the word of God to bear and preaches it to you. So those three ways, you can read, study, and meditate in his word yourself, Uh, You can speak to God through prayer, and you can hear from God through hearing his word preached as well. That's the how-to, but why is this so important? I mean, it seems like such a simple, fundamental thing. Why is interacting with God so important to do every day? First reason is, is that because we got to be close to the coach to know what he wants us to to think and do. In other words, this is really the primary way to pursue your mission to be an overcomer. You've got to pay attention to your coach, to grow in your, in your love and your fear of the Lord, to become more like his son, to know truth, to be able to discern error. You've got to know what the coach wants you to do. And the only way to do that is to hear from him through his word, from a preacher, a sound preacher, praying back to him, the way he works through his Holy Spirit inside of you. This is our primary way the most fundamental way to pursue our mission of being an overcomer. But there's a second reason. It's because we're sheeple and not people, and we get off track easily. Have you ever noticed in Scripture how many times that we're compared to the sheep? All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and we're always being considered as sheep. Now, sheep are not the brightest animals in the bunch. They easily get lost They easily wander away. They need constant reminders. They need the shepherd around them kind of pushing them the right way. And that's the way we are. It's like, for instance, you could take the analogy of not taking a shower. If you didn't shower every day, what happens after a couple days? We all know. We don't want to smell that. you, You begin to stink. It's the same thing when we don't eat. When we don't eat for a couple days, we get hungry. But if we ignore that hunger... After a while, we actually just get weak and we, we kind of lose our hunger and we get emaciated and anemic. It's the same thing with spiritual food. Job said, I have treasured the words 
of his mouth more than my necessary food. In other words, I treasure scripture more than even the daily meals I eat. And I, I think there's some reason to the fact that why did God make us to have to eat, you know, two or three times a day? I mean, why didn't he just like eat once a week and that's it? I think it's a, an example of deeper meaning as to how we need to take in physical food to survive as to why we need to take in spiritual food regularly to survive. Second Timothy 3 says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So if you want to be equipped to serve God, we need to take in his word every day. And it comes down to this verse of renewing your mind. It says, do not be conformed to this world. So if you don't want to be conformed to this world, if you want to overcome those three battle fronts we talked about yesterday, the world, the flesh, and the devil, if you want to overcome the pillars of peril, sexual immorality, drugs and alcohol, and humanism, if you want to overcome those things, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I'm just going to do a little demonstration on this particular issue. I could literally bounce the ball on my racket like this all day. I've been playing tennis for, you know, 40 years. I'm 44 years old now. I've been playing since I've been four years old. And this is such a basic fundamental thing of of tennis, just being able to bounce the ball on my racket. But what one thing do you see me doing right now that maybe if I wasn't doing, I wouldn't be able to do this? Watch the ball, right? Okay, now if I stop watching that ball, even though I've been playing tennis for so many years, watch what happens. Here I go. Look away. Boom, boom, boom. And the ball goes off the racket. You think, wait now, what a simple and fundamental thing to do, to bounce the ball on your racket. You're a professional tennis player. You should be able to do that all day without even looking. But the fact is I can't. I can't do that, even for how skilled I am in tennis, I can't do that for more than two or three bounces and it falls off the racket. And it's the same thing in our spiritual lives as well. When we take our eyes off the ball, we take our eyes off this book, when we take our eyes off Scripture, when we don't have this book in God renewing our mind, transforming us or renewing our mind every day, we are going to drop the ball. I can guarantee you of that. This was one thing that I don't even know why, but when I told you yesterday that I came to a saving faith in Christ, I made it my own when I was 24 years old, that I made a commitment back then. I made actually two commitments back then. One was to be a one-woman man, which means that from then on in my life, I had committed in Christ's strength and by his spirit that I was going to wait for the woman that God would bring into my life to to marry, and then I would be with that woman for the rest of my life. It was a commitment. I made for the rest of my life. That was one commitment I made. But the second commitment I made was that I would read the Bible every day whether I felt like it or not. And it's been interesting because there have been a lot of days I really haven't felt like it. I've been busy and running around doing things and whatever. But it's funny how God has almost daily reminded me with even a day that I didn't read it first thing in the morning, there's all of a sudden a reminder comes into my mind. I haven't been in the Word today. And even sometimes I've been kind of apathetic or about reading it I've read it just because of the commitment I made, and I realized after I read it for five or ten minutes that it never returns to me void, as Scripture says. And I think there's been many times in my life where those two commitments have been able to be kept, and they fully saved me from myself 
but primarily this commitment to read the Word daily has really helped. So when you make this commitment and keep this commitment to read the Word of God daily, I mean, it doesn't make you a good person or anything, but it is going to increase the time of communication with the Lord and deepen your relationship with Him. Very important fundamental. Let's go to fundamental number two and three. They are interaction with your peers and interaction with your authorities. There is an article about a student who went to Arizona in the Christian Post, and she said this, During a conference, one Arizona student shared that she regretted not plugging in to a body of believers sooner when she went to college. She said that her need to fit in drove her to party and binge drink, even while nursing a tonsil infection. First couple of days, I'll be honest, they were crazy. I was probably drunk half the time. I wanted to fit in. I didn't know anyone, Lori said during a filmed interview. I had a tonsil infection. I had a fever. My throat hurt. I couldn't figure out what was going on, and I still went out and partied. I wanted to belong so badly. Eventually, in all of this mess, I was sexually assaulted, and that throws you down really deep, and you go, God, what am I doing? How did I get into this situation? And I went home so broken for Christmas. It took me a year and a half to basically work through what I had done in a, in a few months of her first semester in college, Lori said. So many times I've been on my knees, and God, I wish I could change it. Lord, please, if I could just make it go away, and it was just a bad dream, she sobbed. And I want to say to you that friends are so key in college. The way you interact with your peers is such a big thing. You truly do, as someone said, become like the people you're with. Proverbs 13.20 says, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. You become like the people you're with. I told you yesterday that one of the reasons I went down to that tennis academy was to have the opportunity to practice with players that were better than myself because I wanted to become more like them on the tennis court. It's the same thing with our friends as well. If we spend time with good friends, we'll become more like them and vice versa as well. So the goal is mutually beneficial relationships. And you can read more about this in University of Destruction, but mutually beneficial relationships versus detrimental relationships. So this is where the non-mutually beneficial relationships in our life, we need to figure out how to regulate those relationships and reach out with the gospel to them. So we want to prioritize having these mutually beneficial relationships, and we want to regulate down the amount of time we spend with those who don't have a positive spiritual effect on us. And we'll talk about that now. So how do we do this? How do we choose friends? And I think that you think, well, choosing friends, I never really thought about that. I just sort of attracted to the people that I'm naturally attracted to. And that's part of the problem. We need to be intentional about the kind of people we are going to spend our, the most time with. The first thing we need to do is to recognize when we are in a group of people, we need to have discernment or use spiritual perception about others' hearts. Although we can't know everything about someone's heart, we can use spiritual perception to see what's inside their heart. The Bible says in 1 Samuel 16, For the Lord does not see as man sees, for men look on the outward, but the Lord looks on the heart. So here's how to find mutually beneficial relationships, friendships that are going to help you in the faith rather than hinder you in the faith. First thing you need to do, and this is very important before you go off to college, wherever you go, you need to contact a Christian group on campus before you go. 
you know, like an FCA, like a, like a Campus Crusade or a crew. An organization that, not only just a professing Christian organization, but one that has some biblical soundness to it. I mean, as, long, as you know, in the world of professing Christendom, everything that glitters is not gold. So I tell you to find a Christian group and make sure it's a good Christian group that treats the Word of God soundly, that is intent on the gospel, a group like that that doesn't deconstruct Scripture. Number two is to take your time when you get on, on campus, when you're, when you're meeting new people and making friends. Many of you will be going off to college. Maybe most of you, if all of you are going off to college this fall, you're going to be going to a totally new environment. Lots of new people, whole new pool to select friends from. Take your time. Don't make quick assumptions or conclusions. You see, I think that Satan knows very well what type of friends to put in our life that would be detrimental to us. I think it's the same way with marriage as well. As I got married later in my life, I I realized that all these years I was single, that it's like Satan kept on putting the wrong kinds of women in my life that had a lot of things that were attractive about them, maybe attractive physically, maybe intelligence, maybe common interests, but there was something spiritually that wasn't right, that wasn't quite right. And I could have got married to several of them, and it wouldn't have been the kind of relationship that God finally brought in my life with my current wife now. We're really on the same page spiritually, same worldview, same faith, same interests, where now it's really God's best for me. And I think it's the same thing with our friendships as well. That Satan wants to bring those wrong kinds of friends in their life, and he'll, he'll put them in attractive packages for us. And he knows kind of the interests we have, what kind of people we would normally in our flesh like to spend time around. But we need to really seek God's will and take our time when we're intentionally choosing friends. Then listen to their words. When you think you know somebody you want to spend some more time with, you know, are they a professing Christian? Do they profess Christ? That doesn't mean they're truly a possessing Christian, but do they even profess to know Jesus Christ? What is their conversation like? Do you hear obscenity and profanity coming out of their mouth? That's a good indication. The Bible says out of the heart a man speaks. So what comes out of their mouth is an indication of what's going on inside their heart. How about watch their actions? Do they practice sin, as we talked about yesterday, or do they practice righteousness? What is the fruit of their life? And then note their own friends as a final little tip on finding mutually beneficial friendships. The old saying, birds of a feather flock together. It's true. You can tell a lot about someone by who they keep company with. So this is how to recognize or or find these mutually beneficial friendships. And then once we recognize, there's a second R. Then we need to regulate them. We're going to be able to divide people into different groups here. We're going to say, these people are committed believers, overcomers. I want to regulate up the amount of time I spend with these kind of people. And then for those who, who aren't, who are maybe we sense, see things in their lives that we know that it wouldn't be good for us to spend all kinds of time around, we don't want to shun them or never see them or never be a, an acquaintance with them. But we want to be careful about how much time we spend with them. We want to have intentional time with them, maybe in more evangelistic purposes or in your own mind, just knowing that what kind of relationship that could be if I get too involved. Again, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. Here's a couple of tips as we finish up on this particular game plan. A few friend tips for dealing with peer pressure. Because as I mentioned, you are a time in your life where there is a lot of peer pressure. And that doesn't go away even when you get older, but you're at a particular time in life when you're becoming your own person and there's a lot of peer pressure trying to conform you to being a certain way. 
Number one is create awareness about what you believe, that you're a Christian. I mean, you don't need to be, you know, wear on your sleeve and, you know, be over the top with it. But I think just in your matter of conversation, let people know you're a Christian. Let people know what you believe. Even if it's a sentence or two or whatever, even if it's like, yeah, I'm going to church this weekend, or create some awareness that you're a believer. Because when you do that, result of that's going to be you're going to decrease the expectations for unbelievers to have you join them in doing what they want to do. That's sinful. Do you understand that? Does everyone get that? In other words, when you create a little awareness, that's going to be like, oh, they're a little different from me. Maybe that's not the kind of person I want to invite to go out drinking tonight. And so that will just slightly decrease. Now, there's some people who will hear you say that you're a Christian and want to take you down, actually. There are people out there like that. So this isn't a guaranteed method. It's just a little bit of a way, if you feel a lot of peer pressure to join in with the sinful activities going in college, it's a way to kind of decrease it a little bit. This actually really helped me a lot when I was on the tour and uh, became a Christian. Once other players knew that I was a Christian, I could tell they weren't as apt to invite me to the same kind of places they, were, they wanted me to go. Number two, this is one of the most important things you can learn to do in life, and something you actually say, is no. The word no. And this applies to anyone your age, 20s, 30s, 40s, and beyond. You know, it's very easy in life to say yes because you're not disappointing someone, you're agreeing with someone, you're not creating conflict. But learning how to have the backbone just to graciously say no is a good skill to learn how to do. If you don't want to do something, just say, you know, thanks for inviting me, but I'm not going to be able to do that tonight. You don't need to give reasons. You just need to be able to say no in life. And if you can learn this skill now, it's going to really be helpful for you as you get into your 20s and 30s, even beyond college as well. The third thing you need to do, be able to, I think, withstand when it comes to friend, is you need to rejoice, in a way, over being ridiculed for your faith. You kind of have to relish living for God and the persecution that that might bring. You know, the Bible says in Matthew 5, Christ in the Sermon on the Mount said, Blessed are you when they, like the unbelieving world, reviles and persecutes you and say all kinds of evil or bad things against you falsely for my sake. It says rejoice. I mean, don't go in a corner and feel all bad. Actually rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So we don't need to feel like, man, I'm just, I'm all alone. This is terrible. I'm just being you know, shunned and ridiculed for my faith. Think of it a different way, that they ridiculed your Savior, and he was perfect. If they ridicule you, you're in the right camp. Let's move on to fundamental number three, interaction with your authorities. Tony Dungy, the well-known football coach, won the Super Bowl for the Indianapolis Colts, and now is a commentator for NBC during the NFL. Great Christian man. He had a son, who named James, who committed suicide when James was in his early 20s. Tony Dungy said this, as he, James, got a little older, like all teenagers, he was searching for who that person was inside of him, who he was going to be. And like most of us, I think he went through a time as a teenager that he wasn't sure his parents always had the best advice. He wasn't sure that we always had his best interest at heart, the coach said. My daughter, Tierra said it best the other day. She said, I just wish he could have made it until he was 20 because when you're 17 or 18, sometimes the things you guys, as in the authorities in life, you say to us, don't always make sense. When I got to 20, 
they started making sense again. That's Tony Dungy's daughter. It's interesting on this issue of authority in life. It's something they're not talked about very much anymore. But why do you think that every athlete or every team has a coach? Why do you think that God designed the family for parents to raise their children? Why do you think every military and every corporation in the world has a defined structure of authority, president, vice president, and on down? And the reason is, is that God teaches us and he directs us and he protects us through our human authorities. Romans 13 says, let every soul, and that means 18-year-olds, 30-year-olds, 45-year-olds, and 60-year-olds, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. So who are our authorities in life? Well, there are four different basic structures of authority in life that we need to be under. Parents are number one. They're, of course, our first authority as we grow up. Church is another authority. No matter what age you are in life, you should be under the authority of your church. Civil authorities are your, the police and the courts and that kind of thing. That's another authority in government that the Bible says we are to be under. And the last one is employer, teachers. In your case right now at this particular time in life, you're not working yet, most likely full-time. But your employer or teachers are another kind of authority. And again, God doesn't implement these authorities in our life to sort of be heavy-handed. At least they shouldn't be. He implements these authorities in our life to direct us and protect us through these particular human authorities. I like to use this lesson. Oh, so before I get to that, how do we interact with these authorities, first of all, when we go off to college? First of all, keep in touch with your parents. You know, whether your parents are saved or not, God still put them in your life to be the authority over you. And it doesn't mean you have to do something they say if it's, you know, causing you to go into sin. Of course not. You never obey authority in that regard. But if your parents are trying to give you direction, try to listen and heed their counsel, interact with them. So when you go off to college, keep in touch with the parents who love you. Number two, when you get to college, find a a church or a family or a mentor. Find someone on campus who's older than you that can be a mentor to you. You can go to when you're away from home and you have questions about something, you need counsel on a decision you're making. Find a church, find a family, find a mentor, someone that you can confide in and be able to go to for spiritual counsel. Number three, as I mentioned, plug into that campus Christian group. The person who leads that group is probably going to be a fairly sound Christian. This is another person that you can go to. And number four, respect authority. Respect your professors on campus, even if you disagree. You know, this is something we talked about yesterday, the fact that professors are trying to evangelize yourself to their worldview. But when you interact with them and you maybe push back against them, Do it with respect because still, they are your authority and they are there to direct you in a certain way. Even if they're trying to direct you the wrong way, God will use them to teach you things in your life. Even if it's the wrong thing, he teaches you through bad examples as well. And I like to tell the story of my lab, Ben, with regard to authority. This was the lab, the subject of this this book I've written entitled My Boy Ben. It's like Ben. You see Ben here, he's all poised to run after this rabbit. You see the rabbit in the background right there beneath the bushes. Now just imagine that Ben is out in my yard and there's a rabbit across the street. Not through a fence, but across the street. And so here I am standing there and I see Ben 
all stiff like this, wanting to go after the rabbit. I see the rabbit across the street, and Ben is just so intent on chasing this rabbit. I mean, he loved to chase the bunny rabbits. Okay, so I'm sitting there watching Ben, and I'm Ben's authority, and I see the situation developing that Ben is about to take off or run across that street to go get that rabbit. But what Ben doesn't see, that I see his authority, is that as he's about to cross that street, I look down there, he's so focused on the rabbit, I look down the street and see that a car is coming from that way and a car is coming from that way and they're going this way. And I can just see what's going to happen. Ben's going to tear across the street. These cars are going to come by at the same time and Ben's going to get hit, hurt badly, if not killed. And so as his authority, I say, Ben, sit, stay. Do not move. Now, Ben has a choice at this time. He can think of me as this, you know, heavy-handed authority in his life and someone who's just trying to ruin his fun and trying to keep him from chasing after the rabbit, which I sometimes let him do. Or the other choice that Ben can think about, and I don't think Ben's actually thinking this way, he's a dog, but he could think to himself, well, David is my authority. He has my best interest at heart, and it's best for me, even though I don't understand if these two cars are coming, it's best for me to just obey now, and I possibly may understand later. So if he does, if he obeys me, there's going to be blessing in his life. He's not going to get hurt. But if he disobeys me, he's likely to get very hurt very, very badly. And so there's a lesson to be had in in understanding that our, our authorities in life sometimes see things that we don't. And we obey them, except in situations where they tell us to do something that's against God's word, when we obey them and honor them. Or if we have problems with what they tell us to do, to discuss it with them. Not just obey in a robotic manner, but if we think what they're telling us to do is wrong, is discussing with them respectfully. That is how God protects us and he directs us. Interaction with God, interaction with your peers, interaction with your authorities. And that was a very cliff note explanation of those things. And you can find out more about those. A whole section of the book devoted to how to raise your spiritual GPA. Let's close this session by asking a fundamental question now that we're talking about the fundamentals today. I received a note from a parent after reading University Destruction and this parent wrote me and said, why would any college-bound young adult take the do-as-I-say-not-as-I-did advice you offer when they are embarking on their first opportunity to test unlimited freedom of choice in a controlled environment, I wouldn't agree with that in college, which is somewhat monitored, which is not true, and bankrolled by their parents. You turned out better than okay, so why would a 17, 18, or 19-year-old make a choice different than yours? Faith and forgiveness will still be there at the end of the semester. Now, this is a parent writing me this. Basically, what she's saying is, hey, just go off to college, have your quote-unquote fun, and then faith and forgiveness will be there someday. There's an answer to this question, and the answer comes, I think, is told so well in the story of Moses. You all know the story of Moses. He was from a Jewish family in Egypt. They were down there living in Egypt, and they were being really oppressed by the Egyptians, and they were growing, the the nation, the Jews were growing down there, and they were populating more and more, and the Pharaoh down there was getting nervous that the Jews were starting to outpopulate the Egyptians and that the Jews were going to somehow take over the land. So he gets this edict, and he says, any children born to Jewish mothers need to be killed. And so Moses' mother is pregnant with Moses. She hears about this. She has Moses, and what does she do? She puts him in a basket, hides him from the, the foreman of Pharaoh who come and try to kill all these children. 
And as you know, Pharaoh's daughter goes out by the Nile River one day and sees this basket with this little Jewish baby in the basket and has compassion on this child and tells her maidens to go get the baby. And Moses, this Jewish baby, not only doesn't get killed, but he gets raised in the very palace of Pharaoh. I mean, talking about going from worst to first, from going from poverty to like the indulgent riches of the Pharaoh of Egypt. So Moses is raised in the very home of Pharaoh with the best education, the most money, the most privilege of anyone in the whole country. And it says this about Pharaoh in Hebrews 11. By faith Moses, when he became of age, when he became your age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Moses esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures that he had in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. In other words, this wasn't obvious for Moses to leave the palace of Pharaoh that he had grown up and join his own people and lead them out of Egypt. This wasn't an obvious thing to do. This was by faith. This was done when he was a young man. He was young. He refused to be called the, the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose rather not to live in indulgence in the, in the palace, but he chose to suffer affliction with the people of God. And this is an interesting line. Then to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. I'm not here today to tell you that sin is not pleasurable. It is pleasurable. If it wasn't pleasurable, no one would do it. That's the point. Sin is pleasurable. But what's the modifier next to it here? It's passing pleasures of sin. Because Moses esteemed suffering for Christ, the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. What was the reward? The reward is why we should be an overcomer. You can be an overcomer because if you want because of the consequences, that can motivate you because the temporary or the passing pleasures of sin are not worth the enduring consequences. And, you know, drinking alcohol, you can get drunk and get in a car accident and die or be paralyzed for life or you can become pregnant before marriage and you can have a child and not be able to find, get a sexually transmitted disease, whatever. Those are all the consequences. And those are fine if you want to think in terms of consequences. I think it's good. But what I find is most people in life, especially teenagers, don't think in terms of consequences so much. That's not as good a motivating force in their life as it is to think about reward. That there's great present and future reward for you, blessing for you for following Christ. Whether it's the priceless joy, like the Visa commercial, that's priceless. What's really priceless is the joy of glorifying God and enjoying His presence right now in the here and now. And then the future reward, even greater, of receiving eternal life in heaven later. This is really the great motivation for why you should be an overcomer in college. And not think of college as, hey, this is the four years for me to have fun. No, you get the opportunity to follow Christ in college, to impact your classmates for Christ, to live for him and have the priceless joy of following him now and receive the eternal reward of following him later. So I'm not here to tell you today to be an overcomer in college because your parents tell you so, because your teachers here at Nebraska Christian tell you so, because your coaches of your sports team tell you so, or I told you so. If you want to be an overcomer for those reasons, that's great. But I'd like you to be an overcomer because it's for God's glory and for your good. And you can take ownership of your future and for you to make the right decisions and for you to grow in your fundamentals and raising your own spiritual GPA. That will be the game plan for helping you be an overcomer. 
on campus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for the things you give us in your word, a simple game plan to be able to overcome the challenges of the world, the flesh, and the devil, the the temptations of uh, a battle for the body, sexual immorality, a battle for the spirit, drugs and alcohol, and a battle for our mind, humanism, the three pillars of peril. That you've given us a very simple fundamental game plan that all of us can put into action as we work on raising our spiritual GPA, how well we interact with you, Lord, how well we interact with our peers, and how well we interact with our authorities. When we do those things well, we can go anywhere in life, and we'll be able to be an overcomer for your glory and for our good. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by David Wheaton at our chapel service at Nebraska Christian Schools. For my co-host, Josh Cumston, this is Gordon Thiessen. Thanks for joining us as we encourage, engage, and equip Christians in today's culture war while bringing the truth in focus.